Really pleased to be joined by Senator Al Franken, uh, a very funny man who is a very serious United States Senator, a first-rate public servant. Uh, frankly, I've said this many times, somebody I, I think uh, we would all be better off if he was still in the United States Senate. His departure from it, in my view, a tragic disgrace, but Al Franken is a person uh, who represents really an ideal of American democracy, which is that we don't have peerages in this country, is that all people from all walks of life have a role to play in citizenship. Al Franken stood for office and served very well in the United States Senate. And that used to be called the most uh, the greatest deliberative body in the in the world, Senator. And yeah. I don't think many people think of it like that anymore today. How do we get that back? I don't know. Uh, maybe some rule changes, maybe some uh, changes in the composition in terms of party right now. The Republican Party has become something unrecognizable. But, you know, when I... Even when I got there in uh, 09, uh, a number of my, I, I asked, I went up to some of my older colleagues, some of my more senior colleagues, and, and a number of them said it's never been worse. And that was then. <laughs> right. And uh, I remember Carl Levin saying, well, it's been worse. And I said, when? He said, uh, 1854. <laughs> and I said, Charles Sumner being, you know, uh, uh, caned. And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, that was right before the Civil War. That was the lead up to the Civil War. And they went, what about after that? He said, oh, now it's as bad as it's ever been. <laughs> and uh, But it just got worse. It just got worse the uh, longer I, I was there. And I don't think it was because of me. No, it definitely wasn't. So, so when you look at Clarence Thomas, right, as uh, all the perks you get for being a Supreme Court justice, you ever think you went into the wrong branch of government? I mean, you know, we got the private jets, yachts to the most remote corners of the world, private school tuition paid for. Seems like a great gig if you can get it. I don't quite understand um, why he just doesn't say something like, you know, I forgot that I got this stuff or something like I yeah and did you see the tape that I saw it yesterday where he said that I really I'm come from such humble background I don't like going to fancy places I like going to uh uh to trailer parks and did you see that right yeah yeah so so like I when this whole story broke right I I, I was just I I just like hit myself I was like man I should have known better right because I bought into this um, you know, the one thing that I knew about him or thought I knew about him was that he spent most of the summer traveling around America in this mobile home in a in a in an RV. Uh, he would talk about he likes to be with the people, you know, camping out in the Walmart parking lots and, you know, to each his own. Like a lot of people love to be in the RV and travel all around the summer. Not my thing, but, you know, thought it was his thing. Apparently, though. Um, you know, he's on the Bombardier uh, flying off to the remotest places of Indonesia, to the most beautiful azure waters in the world. Um, 
you know, everything is paid for. Now, uh, Leonard Leo, um, who was bequeathed a billion dollars, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, but I think about a billion dollars, right, by a, by a dead right wing uh, extremist, which will throw off, I think, 70, 75 million dollars a year to put more extremists on the court, just found out this guy, through Kellyanne Conway, is funneling payments to Jenny Thomas. Right. Uh, who, you know, is is neck deep in January 6th as a person could be who hasn't been in, who hasn't been found guilty of sedition like the Proud Boys, I suspect. Yeah, um, it's amazing. And of course, Clarence, um, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts refused to testify before the Judiciary Committee. Um, this uh, I get that, though, right? I mean, you get the separation of power. Do you think he should have testified? I mean, yeah. I, I, get why, I get why he did it. I, I think he should be responsive to the Judiciary Committee. I think what's wrong? What, why can't he testify? What, what's I, the separation of power? What's the problem with the separation of powers there? He just comes and he answers questions and he talks about what are you guys, what are you going to do to clean this up? That would have been the questions. And I know it would have been raucous because of the Republicans that are on that and the Democrats that are on it. But he, he need, I hold Roberts responsible for a lot of the worst uh, and most egregious decisions uh, that we've had uh, in, in the court, including I know it was uh, it was. Uh, not his decision it was kennedy's decision on citizens united but roberts that was five four and you know when roberts testified he said he's going to call balls and strikes and if you remember how that decision and, and, I, and just just to be just to disclose so i ran that confirmation process in the in the bush white house for the for roberts. roberts and 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 to lay that out there, and just before before you go on on that, you know, I'd say that you know, he's someone that I've always held in very high regard, um, and somebody who I think was very very sincere in his institutional beliefs about the role of the court, the sanctity of the court, the importance of the court. But I agree with you. Um, there's no question that he has lost control of the court as the as the chief justice and this integrity issue which is which is foundational is one that he is mishandling mishandling profoundly but but i go back I'll you off on on your on your on the decision on the decision part of that because I'd, I'd love to know how you see that okay well on remember he said that you call balls and strikes yeah absolutely he said i'm an umpire an umpire yeah. called balls and strikes. I don't think he's done that at all. Uh, on Citizens United, it was the case, as you recall, was about Citizens United wanted, did a movie, an anti-Hillary movie. Right. And they wanted to know whether they could run ads for the movie. That was the case. And they heard the case and they couldn't decide it or ran out of time. So they let it go. Then they went, but then they brought it up again, but then they brought it up with no new facts, not, they, not deciding on nothing they had reviewed, and suddenly did Citizens United, what we know now, which is dark money in politics that doesn't have to be disclosed. Although Kennedy 
who wrote the decision, in the decision, said the great thing about this is there'll be disclosure, except there turned out to be no disclosure. And this was not calling balls and strikes, and this was not deciding things narrowly. And that's what Roberts testified in his testimony, as you must remember. And this was the opposite of that. And then in Shelby County, uh, he, oh, and, and by the way, if, if you decide something and say there's going to be disclosure and then there's no disclosure, you're supposed to revisit it. And they never revisit it. Then in Shelby County, which Roberts decided, he said that, well, uh, it's worked. Uh, you know, uh, Title V has, has worked. And so we don't need it anymore because there's, uh, it's, it's, it's already worked and there's no, uh, discrimination in voting. And famously, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg said, that's like saying, you know, you can throw away your umbrella when it's raining because you're not getting wet. Well, immediately Texas and North Carolina and other, um, jurisdictions, states and jurisdictions started you know rewriting their laws so no longer there was no pre-clearance by the justice department and bang they just started completely uh let's, you know let's targeting talk about blacks with almost surgical decision the fourth circuit said but that was too late it was too late because you didn't have pre-clearance now you had just had title two and so I, I, this is pre uh, Merrick Garland not getting taken up. This is pre Coney Barrett being seated eight days before uh, the election, uh, pre all that illegitimacy. Uh, and I, I hold Roberts very responsible for that. And I forgot you, that history of your, you, your involvement in that. You Do you view the court at this point as illegitimate yeah. or hovering on that line? Oh, absolutely. You, you think that Democrats should say that? Yeah. I'll tell you, you know, one thing. How do, if, how do you how do you how do you fix it? I, I So, you know, one, one thing that's obvious to me, right, is you as you read in the papers that, you know, as we push on into the 22nd century, when people are living to be 165 years old, is that is that we don't need the next Clarence Thomas on the court for 102 years. So probably 15 year term limits um to deal 18, with something 18. right to deal with something that you know our 18th century founders didn't see coming right that people were going to live this long is is certainly one of them and transparent ethics standards but i um what what else i think that's all you can do because once you if you start expanding the court then it becomes tit for tat and the next <laughs> next time they get uh the senate and the and the presidency, they're going to expand the court. And, you know, I I just don't think that works. So the 18 year term sounds like something and each president gets, uh, you know, two appointments uh, that that makes her nominations that that makes sense. And I, of course, that runs into the difficulty of if you don't have the Senate, et cetera. Uh, so now there's no good fix to what they did, but what they did was totally illegitimate. 
And it was illegitimate on both sides. It was illegitimate when they said, uh, oh, well, uh, I mean, they could do what they did. They could. They had the power to do it. But they said, you know, but you'll hear them say, oh, there was precedent for it. There was never no precedent for it ever. And then and then they said, and of course, the whole thing was, well, this is the, the Biden rule. He said, this is the Biden rule. He said, you can't bring up a Supreme Court nomination during the presidential year. And that was that was bullshit. That wasn't true. And then uh, and then Coney Barrett gets brought up, you know, uh, in uh, Ginsburg dies in middle September, middle to late September. And they bring her up and they literally I, I remember uh, McConnell saying, there's already been votes cast in, in New Hampshire in the primary, right? There have been millions and millions and millions of early votes cast in 20. Lindsey Graham had said, if somebody comes up in, in the 20 election, we won't take them up. It, it, it's, you know, I'm, I feel I, I have very bitter feelings about that. And, that, and that's how how we've gotten Dobbs and and how we're going to get all these other, you know, I want affirmative action and prayer, essentially saying it's okay to pray in school and all that stuff. Um, when you, when you look at the issue of civil rights in the country, you, you once said something to me that, that I, that I thought was pretty profound. Um, you know, as we talked about my conversion to Judaism, but you had said to me that your father, um, watching the civil rights protests, uh, cops beating a beating a black man on television. What did, what did he say to you? Well, it was during a '63 uh, march, one of those marches, and it was, yeah. Uh, my dad said no Jew could be for this. We would watch. Uh, the news while eating dinner and my mom made great dinner it was just not tv dinners they were on tv trays mm -hmm. but my mom cooked dinner in the kitchen served them and we watched the news we watched either cronkite or huntley brinkley but i remember we were watching bull connor putting dogs and fire hoses and clubs on and my dad who was i we we're in minnesota but my dad grew up in new york pointed to the TV and he said, no Jew can be for that. No Jew can be for that. And I was, I was 13 years old or 12 years old. And that, I mean, that stuck. And I knew that, of course, we, we, the Holocaust had not been all that far away at that point. And um, I knew exactly what he meant. And um uh, stuck really hard. It's um, and it's still not that far away. Um, no. It still is an event that occurred within the uh, long lifespan of a human being. But soon we will cross the line where there will be no survivors left of the camps and no survivors who storm the beaches. And um, you know, I tell my kids right that's one of the big differences between the era that they grew up in and the era that I grew up in is they never got to know any of those people. Um, and getting to know some of those people 
you know, I, I view as very much a privilege and a in a in a in a great thing in life and, and a helpful thing in this moment because we have a real life extremist movement uh in this country. I've used the word fascist to describe it. I think that is precisely what it is, um, particularly when you look at whatever demarcation line you want to draw in your head and then assign Trump and DeSantis and uh, that ilk uh, within it. How, how do you see this moment when Donald Trump gets up there and he says, we got we to gotta end the U.S. Constitution? Right. Time to time to scrap it. And he's standing where he's standing in the in the polls. How do you take that? Do you do you do you just say this is a, a guy who's full of shit and bluster, which he is? Um, or right, do you take him literally and seriously? And I, I'll just say I my 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 deal with him is I take everything he says literally, seriously. And and my default position is is if you say it, you you mean it, and we have a current in the media that looks at the plain things all of these people say, and has created an industry trying to explain why it is they don't mean the things they say over and over again and act on. How do how do you process that stuff? Oh, I'm pretty much exactly where you are, um, and the prospect of him being reelected means it's over that that's what i think i mean you saw the end what does of over mean i mean i say that i believe it's over too but go deeper on that what what <laughs> does that i mean the american system the american system is resilient right because it's so decentralized right it it is it is like the a the original ai right of some some level it's almost unkillable when you look at its resiliency, how how decentralized it is down the down the range, but I don't disagree with that sentiment that it's that it's over. But what does what does over mean? Well, remember these things called norms, <laughs> and there were things that people just accepted as norms that also protected us, and those kind of went away. And then there are part of the norms were that we, you know, had used due process and that we um, uh, hired people <laughs> who knew what they were doing and weren't, uh, who had integrity. And that so if you hire an attorney general, if you, you know, if they, he was going to put this guy Clark in as attorney general. Uh, and for no other reason than that Clark was going to help him foment a uh, takeover. Um, it, it, that's what we would get this time. That's right. And, you know, we had Mattis and we had people like that. We wouldn't get one of those people again. We would have just goons. Uh, and it, it would uh, it, it wouldn't devolve into what you're discussing in, in terms of fascism, it would start there. Uh, and I, I, I just am, uh, I, you know, it's hard for me to believe that this guy could get elected. I, I'm, 
I remember thinking I had Dan Balls on my podcast, and I said to him, you know, uh, when he got, had the first indictment in Manhattan, I thought, well, of course he's going to get more support from his people because it's a thin indictment and it's about this thing. And but I'm thinking that you know, four more indictments down the road, he's going to start losing support. And then I started thinking, maybe I'm wrong. And I said, what do you, what do you think, Dan? He goes, I think maybe you're wrong. <laughs> and uh, I go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and these would be pretty serious ones, including, you know. Uh, how, do, how, how do you, how do you explain that? I don't How know. Can you explain that a cult of personality that's exactly what root of all people around this guy? It, well, it's funny because you know, usually a cult of personality would take place around someone who you could say, like, I can see that. <laughs> I can I can see that. And um, I guess, uh, you know, uh, I didn't see this. I, I didn't, there was no attraction. I guess the thing I could see with Trump was the bluster and confidence and the uh, resentment that he embodied, which, um, you know, the Queens uh, real estate developer resenting the Manhattan real estate developers, but whatever his, the, or the son resenting the dad or just a, a pathological guy resenting the world or, and I think he tapped into the resentment that a lot of Americans feel about their country uh, turning, you know, multi-ethnic and racial and that they are losing their status and they are losing their power and they don't like, you know, going to the DMV and, and seeing everyone having a foreign language, you know, speaking, you know, they, they don't, there's, and they are resentful and scared and this guy taps into that, and that's what I didn't understand. I, I, I should have realized that, you know, a charismatic figure who's going to become one of those isn't going to be charismatic to me. Do, do you, so the way that I, the way that I process him is, is like this at some at some level. I, I regard him as a of a. I regard him as a philosopher. He is a he is a practitioner of philosophy, Donald Trump, and he is a philosopher of fuck youism. Okay. And and at the at the at the bottom line, right? There's there's a lot of people in the country, right, who are deserving of consideration on that fuck you radar screen, right? Um. So a cu couple of just kind of baseline facts. 40% um, of the country has $400 cash available. Um, or doesn't. Right, or <laughs> or even, even less, right? You have uh, tens of millions of people unbanked. 
food insecurity among the enlisted ranks in the military. Go look at a payday lending line, right, outside a military base, right, you know, a week before, a week before payday. A million opioid deaths um, that apparently uh, no one on the coast really knew about, um, judging by the coverage, until 2017. So there's this primal rage. Um, I think that when people look at, for example, the CEO of Moderna, and this is a public company, this guy made $400 million in American money last year, right? Stocks and stocks and cash, and people can't get their diabetes drugs. And even though the Democrats are working to address issues, they, they have somehow been disconnected from that vast, angry, justifiably aggrieved part of the population that that is so bereft of belief in anything that maybe the last thing they actually believe in is the capacity of this guy to just say fuck you, right? And there and therefore him. But how how do you think about that population, right? A lot of people that are routinely called racist, right? That are with Trump, voted for Obama twice. Um, and so, how do you how do you kind of sort that through? And and how do you talk to those people? Um, because we do have to figure out how to talk to some of these people at some point, don't we? Or yeah, part of the the reason it's very hard to talk to them is that we have uh, two different uh, systems of media, or not systems, but we have a divided uh, message messages coming, and people are sorting themselves into what media they get, right? And um, so. And that's something that, you know, part of what Trump said was um, there is uh, fake news. And, you know, I said that my dad was, we'd watch Cronkite, right? Or Brinkley. That's, you know, that's a long time ago. And uh, now people are, you know, 17%, it's 15 to 17% of Americans uh, believe in QAnon. They, it's 17 to 15%. I get, I, I keep a close eye on these legitimate polling companies. They believe that the elites, um, you know, you and me, I guess, um, and uh, the deep state and the entertainment business and bankers kidnap children keep them hostage, uh, are pedophiles, and drink their blood for this, uh, get energy. Do you think, though, that the number of people that are susceptible to this stuff and that are just batshit crazy has gone up? Or do you just think that they all now have the ability to connect with each other? And it's basically been 
a stable number since the first group of people got off the Mayflower in 1620. I've always been the craziest a stable number, but it, but it could be increasing, right? I could be delusional on that. No, because I, I, I think that uh, this there is a division about where people get their information. And what Facebook has done is it, their algorithm steers you to what outrages you, right? This idea that that Facebook doesn't know where it's sending you is crazy. I mean, it knows exactly where it's sending you. That's the whole point of the algorithm. So the algorithm goes, oh, you like this. Well, I think you might like this. <laughs> and then they get sent, you know, uh, Pizzagate. Um. You know, I, I think like one of the one of the things that, you know, like I said at the beginning, you know, I, I both like and respect and admire you, um, disagree with you on on some issues and sure. make me want to doesn't make me want to kill you. Um, see Thank you. you. Thank you. And, and imprisoned, um, you know, as we as we talk about this, what I what I wanted to ask is. When you, if you were starting a political platform from scratch, and 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 trying to find some common cause with with someone you know historically, right? When you look at the issue sets in the eighties, the nineties, you know, the two thousand, where you're on one side on a different side, you can look back on all of it and sort out who was right and wrong on those issues, and certainly the Republican, you know, position on any one of a number of them was dead wrong. Um, you know, Ross Perot was substantially correct about what would happen to the working class people in this country in the early 1990s with some of these trade agreements. Um, what I would say to you is that what I worry about is big in America, consolidation of power across incredibly powerful against the historical standard companies, Facebook, Google, on and on the on the list goes. And, and what I look, I see the conditions are very similar from a wealth income inequality perspective. We see a loosening of even child labor laws. This time is 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 not so different in some ways from the period of let's call it 1890 to 1915 of rapid technological transformation that brings this gilded age. I think we're in a new gilded age. I think that the average person is on the short side of the of the stick and what that leads to is fundamentally a reform politics that does have populist elements in it because what needs to be reformed at a fundamental level is the corruption. And, and that's not capitalism, that's oligarchy. And so I do you have thoughts on that when you when you look at because I think the political debate as it's consigned left, right, big, small, is a meaningless debate when there's 30 trillion dollars in debt, right? There, there is no, there is no small government party in in a in America. There is no party that that is serious about fiscal restraint if you care about these issues. How, how do you think about an emerging 21st century block of 
voters, right, that move past the staleness of what's been a baby boomer debate, you know, that you arguably has gone on since 1966, but but certainly in the presidential era, right, from 1992, right, up through we're going to have another baby boomer election, basically, even though Biden's not a boomer. Boy, you asked me a big question. Um, I, my dad was a Republican, but was at, because he grew up in New York and he didn't like Tammany. And so when he said no Jew can be for that, he was talking about he became a, a Democrat in 1964 because of Goldwater. And Goldwater was against the Civil Rights Act. But he was a goo-goo. Good government. I think one of the changes we have to <clears throat> make is is on capture. Uh, capture of the agencies. Uh, I think it's terrible that there's this revolving door. If you're uh, in the SEC, then you go back into the banking industry. I think that's part of this consolidation and or this self-serving go into government. And whether you're Democrat or Republican, you, when you when you leave, you you go into the industry you're regulating. I think that's that's a big deal, huge deal. I, yeah, huge. And I, yeah, and so uh, I would like to do legislation, for example, that members can't go back and do that kind of thing, but also people in agencies that they need a timeout. Oh. It's also it's also the generals, right? Who are oh yeah, well you see that contractors who might who might be, you know, at some level they might be the worst example of it. Um, I, I've long thought that if you want to, if you're a general officer and you want to you want to go work for a defense contractor, become a lobbyist, or register as a foreign agent, what that should do is then reduce your permanent rank back to lieutenant colonel you know, with the commensurate retirement payments or, or so. So if you're a four-star general retired, you're David Petraeus, you're you're John Allen, you want to go do that, knock yourself out. Um, but, you know, you will be reduced in grade and rank on the retirement list to, to Lieutenant Colonel. Um, yeah, but that's oh. what you would lose in that. You, <clears throat> I'm sure what these guys get paid. Yeah, prestige. I mean, but but, you know, I, I but I'd certainly I mean, if I was there and you could do it, you know, I'd vote for a complete ban on, you know, this from from a lifetime ban. You're just above a certain grade. You're just it's impermissible. It's impermissible. I, I'd rather <clears throat> I'd rather see that or a limit on how much you could get paid. I don't mind them advising. You know, a, a contractor, but don't get paid millions of dollars to do that. Um so there, <clears throat> there's that aspect of it. I would get rid of dark money in campaigns because that means the very wealthy have just a tremendous control of our political system. And that, that again, that's why Citizens United and Shelby County were so pernicious, but especially, in, in my mind, a Citizens United... Then I I would uh, spend a lot more money on childcare, on child tax credits. I would make it easier to live in this country, 
So the resentment would be, uh, you know, it, people can't pay for childcare. And other countries, if you look at other countries around the world, and this is where you and I may differ as a Republican and a, and a, and a Democrat, but my God, um, you know, in Norway, you have early childhood, you have childcare from till the kid's six. And the average European country spends, uh, I think, $7,000 on childcare per child. And we have some programs to do it, but the average is now is $500. Well, and that is, it, that's just makes it impossible. Talk about making life hard and impossible. Well, and so I think, you know, I, I think about, um, you know, I was reading something, um, I was reading something on one of the, you know, one of the Substack newsletters. I think it was on the Bulwark yesterday. And, uh, and I laughed out loud and it, uh, it referred to, it was, it was a Republican writing and it said, well, when Hillary Clinton talked about it takes a village, when I was in my twenties, I said she was a commie, you know, but now that I have three kids, I realize how right she was right. You know, on, on all of this. And so like in that regard, right. Just as a matter of common sense. And I, and I think common sense and, and good faith and good well, goodwill or kind of elemental considerations and in trying to deal with complexity. What, what I do know about this is that that is that kid uh, that you're talking about, you want to individualize to a per individual amount of money is that's cheap money up front, right? Because, because that kid who enters the system, right. For, for the next 75 years of their life, right. Including into the most expensive categories, right. You know, that they're in prison, what, whatever that, whatever that may be is, is there's no better money. The return right, on investment possibly early childhood right. education is right. what you're talking about. Right. And, and it's been, and, been shown and over and over again, competent delivery of the service, right. That, that makes an impact that, that things, that things work. A child that has early childhood education is much less likely to be left back a grade. Girls who have early childhood education are less likely to get pregnant in adolescence. Kids who have early childhood education are more likely to graduate from high school. They're more likely to go to college. They're more likely to get a good job. They're much less likely to go to prison. Why wouldn't we do this? And you can pay for this by making those at the very top pay. You know, Eisenhower at the very top, and I don't know how many people actually paid 90%. But my God, you know, you have the Bezos and the Musks paying zero. Zero. You know, that you have, and, you know, it's easy to do. You have, if, if you're worth 200 a billion dollars or just a hundred billion, you can borrow a billion dollars that year. Uh, you're borrowing money. You can spend as much as you like. None of that's income. In fact, you can deduct the interest. Maybe, I don't know if you can deduct the interest or not, but you're not paying any taxes at all. We have to change our tax system so that, and, and I love the fact 
that in this package that the Republicans are putting together on the, the debt ceiling is that they're cutting all the money for the IRS. And the scoring on that is if you cut the $80 billion to the IRS, you lose about $200 billion to the treasuries. So the net is like $120 billion that you're losing. And that's what they want to do. That's one of their ideas to balance the budget is just because they don't want tax evaders. It's like, that's our people, tax evaders. That's well, who we like. I mean, if you go, if you go back to, right, you know, I mean, you know, a guy who was ahead of his time on this issue and was right, though his his solution was simplistic, was Steve Forbes, right? And what Steve Forbes said was that the American tax code, and it was smaller then, right? But it's at 3,000 pages of code, 77,000 pages of regulations, right? What whatever that is, right? That doesn't help you and I. Right. And we do all we do all right. Right. I don't think comprehensible to me. But that's the reason that Bezos and these guys don't pay any taxes. When you have something right, that 77000 pages of loopholes. Right. The richest people in the world don't pay taxes. Right. So there there is a there there's an urgent necessity. Right. For, for someone to be able to communicate the urgent necessity of massive transparency and simplification and the eradication of a system that allows anyone who works in the financial services industry to have their own specialized tax rate that's lower than anyone else's in the country um, as a matter as a matter of corruption. I mean, I've paid half of what I've made for my entire life in taxes. I mean, I don't I don't think that I am undertaxed. Um, I, I would love a little bit of a tax cut here and there, but the issue isn't the issue, right? It is it isn't the people paying half, right? It's the people that are paying a quarter who are ex excused from paying half, and it's the people that are paying zero because the thing is eighty thousand pages, and they can game and they can game the system. But I, but I think the tax code and who pays, who doesn't, that burden is enraging the country to such a degree that it's fueling an extremist movement at some level because you have working class people look around and they just say the whole thing is fucked up it's rigged and it's rigged by the government against me so you know who to say fuck you to it's the party that likes government um and and that is putting us into a doom loop on on some of this stuff which which we got to get out of i yeah i don't disagree i mean that tax code you know that if they simplified it, they'd still there. Right. There's, there's mean, still enough there, stuff there. I don't. Sure. I don't know exactly how you do it. You don't just go, okay, the tax right, code, right? Of course, rip right. it up. Okay, here's how it go, starts. Um, and you know there are deals made that are so opaque all the time, constantly. And who do they favor? They favor big donors this is why of course the dark money this is why i go back to citizens united and that was a just the most pernicious decision and uh, and again i go back to kennedy saying well there'll be transparency remember that that was in the I decision 
I'm and, gonna... No, there wasn't transparency. So you know what you're supposed to do, Chief Justice? You're supposed to go, we were wrong. Let's revisit this, Chief Justice. And I'm I sorry think... that you pushed him through, but... <laughs> no, I would say... <laughs> I would say I would say this about about the campaign finance to come to to come back to this right, which is the the person who broke this more than more than anyone else is is John McCain with McCain Feingold. If you go back to two thousand and okay, I think we might disagree on this okay. because he put limits. He he and Feingold put limits on how much you could give. So I, I think, like, first off, when you talk about this issue, the Supreme Court justices, none of these people have any idea, really, how a campaign works, how it's funded, all of this stuff. So in campaign finance history, right, going back to 1976, where you have the first limitations, Buckley v. Vallejo. And and basically what the reformers have always said, and, and they're right about this. I don't I don't disagree with this. There's too much money in politics. And therefore, what they tried to do was to say some money is more pernicious and more corrupting than other monies. And the monies that are most corrupting are the monies that flow to the political parties and the monies that flow to the candidates. And therefore, we're going to impose limits on the parties and the candidates, right? And, and that pulled money away from the parties and the candidates. So now it's an imperfect system. And in that imperfect system, what I would say, like my, my core belief in this, right, is the money isn't controllable, right? It's like moving air around inside of a balloon. So in a democratic system, Right. Whose name do you want on the ad? Do you want the dark money outside group or do you want the candidate ad? Do you want the party ad? Now, what, what the parties, despite whatever their faults and corruptions through history, have always been stabilizing influences. When McCain came along and did this, and John never understood the implications of this in the 2008 campaign, is I'm sitting there as the guy running the campaign and explaining him the different categories of money. McCain looks at me in the eye one day and he goes, he goes, who the fuck's rule is that? And I was like, it's yours. Yours. You did that. I did. Right. He, did, he didn't know what was in the bill. The New York Times didn't understand the bill. But what the bill did, right, was make a First Amendment issue, right, of campaign funding through Citizens United, and going back to 2002, a bunch of us- oh, Wait a minute, Citizens did, United is 10. Well, I understand, but when McCain-Feingold was passed, a bunch of us at the time, on the record, were saying what this will ultimately lead to is this type of decision by, by the court. And in fact, Michael Steele talks about this. The Republican Party joined the suit in a way to limit Right, the effects of Citizens United that it that it wouldn't have been what it was and what it turned out to be, and I, and so I, I only bring this up because I think the only thing you can do to fix this now. I, I'm getting confused, and I hope you're not confusing yeah. your listeners and right. viewers because Citizens United again, it's 2010. Right, McCain-Feingold is what year? 
the, the McCain McCain Feingold's passed in the early aughts and citizens like united, or something like that right and citizens united right is, is a result of a series of challenges right that come right as a result of of mccain feingold right testing different propositions of that right and so, so my only my i think the only thing you can do is to remove all limits to the campaign committees of the candidates and the political parties with an instant disclosure requirement and to ban right the the these outside groups as best you can right by using the tax code to make it impossible to disincentivize the raising of money money into them right but 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 I don't possible to disincentivize right to disincentivize it but but that's but you the 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 regime of trying to take money away and sort it into good and bad categories has led us into this disaster where the people with all the money now or the outside groups with undisclosed dollars. And so in any given congressional race, it's the candidate who has the smallest voice, right? The exactly. outside group that has the biggest and, and the political party has more or less been castrated against these outside groups what do you have now i think you have to fix that yes right what you have right now and you have no transparency whatsoever and, and that's the, that is the that is the that, and that is the most corrupting influence to me and and that is exactly when citizens united was passed that in his decision kennedy said and you go to go to the language of the decision look at it and it's crazy what he says because he says, what's great about this is that there'll be transparency. <laughs> right. Uh, and he says it in the decision. Right. Because, because that guy understood as much about the realities of how money flows in politics as you and I do about particle physics and how to build a reactor. Just but didn't then understand why, it. Then why, so like he, then why didn't the court retake it up and said, well, you know what, you wrote this decision based on a premise that was wrong. We I, have to retake this up because the, your your premise of this, of unlimited money is fine because we will know where it comes from. Well, we don't. And, you know, we I, tried I, I, to vote for disclosure on the Senate floor I, I got to tell you one of the stupidest things the senator ever said to me. Okay, so we um, Citizens United becomes uh, law of the land. Democrats want to put disclosure on it. Want to put disclosure on it. We had just Ted Kennedy had died. We had just lost that election. Uh, Brown Scott Brown becomes the fifty. Uh, becomes the 41st Republican. Now we don't have 60. So we have, we propose a disclosure bill. There were 14 Republicans there who had voted for McCain-Feingold. And um, I'm sorry, who had voted against McCain-Feingold saying, 
you don't need to limit money. You just need disclosure. And this is like Mitch McConnell. Disclose, disclose, disclose. Disclosure is the greatest disinfectant. Okay, it's so... Good Mitch very, very huh? solid. It's a very solid Mitch McConnell. So I go down to the well of the floor because I know this is going to be a 59-41 vote. I know every Republican is going to vote against it. And I know the 14 who said some version of that. And as each one votes, I go, what happened to disclosure, disclosure, disclosure? And they say to me something like, well, it doesn't cover labor unions. And I go, yes, it does. Oh. Now, I say to one senator, same thing. And he says, well, it doesn't cover everyone. It doesn't cover labor unions. I go, yes, it does. He goes, oh. And then he says, stupidest thing. Well, what about the New York Times? <laughs> if it endorses someone on the editorial page, it doesn't have to disclose. And I said to him, it's in the New York Times. And he went, oh. Down. These are Republicans. We got about a minute left before you have to go. You've been generous. Yeah. But I, one of the things I wanted to ask you is um, over your life and over your career, who has genuinely inspired you in, in politics? Paul Wellstone. Paul Wellstone. Um, Paul really he was a real deal. Huh? Huh? He was a believer, huh? I said he yeah. was a believer. He believed yes, yes, in yes, his yes, 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 yes. Man of conviction. Yeah. Man of conviction. And you know, in uh we'll wrap it up, but uh in he was in a very tight race in two thousand two and he was gonna vote against the war in Iraq. And he told me, he told a lot of friends, I'm gonna this is gonna be I'm this will be my this vote will kill me. This will this this will be the end of my career. And they were neck and neck, him and Coleman, and he cast the down and uh the next poll had him up by seven because people in Minnesota respected a senator who believed in what he said. And then well, um then he died in a plane crash. Um, and then, uh, Norm Coleman three, you know, a few weeks after he got into, uh, office, did a interview on roll call and said, to be blunt, I'm a 99% improvement over Paul Wellstone. And that's when I said, I wonder who's running against this guy. Let's leave it there. Perfect way to end it. Mm -hmm. One of the great Americans, Al Franken. Thanks for the time. Thanks. Steve.